0: Good afternoon. We are architects from the year 2050. We have been... uh, We've decided to travel back in time by the digital universe and we occupy the bodies of the dancers you see in front of you. We've travelled back in time to seek an alternative. Future, and we, we want to work with you to produce an, al- an alternative for the future. Um, I guess we'd like to begin by asking you if you have any questions for us about the year 2050. Is there anything you would like to know about the future?
1: Looking at the panel, I was curious as to whether you'd managed to do away with men.
0: As I said, we are architects. From 2050, we've travelled back by the digital universe and we occupy the bodies of these dancers, so... The island that I inhabit, the one that I've contributed to the design of, it, it, it actually... It only has women, except... not in the way we, we know them now. I mean, you can call them women, you can call them men, you can call them hen. It's a place where transgender is the norm and you can move fluidly through different bodies and different materials. I guess, um, as I said, we've travelled by the digital universe so there is the possibility to be Digitize. You don't have to exist or be contained in a body as I am now. Are there any other questions?
2: Are there flying cars?
1: Um, I have been working on an island, um, that's concerned with, uh, flying, so on this particular island there aren't cars as such as you sort of would see cars now, um, but we're working on, uh, ways to make the particles that make up the island airborne. Um, And this is so that there can be free uh, travel between different areas in the island uh, because it's sort of very slow to move along the ground as you can imagine uh, through the sludge of of the, um, the surface of the island. So it's really about um, making things faster for the citizens.
0: Kathleen, there's a question behind you.
2: Are humans still the dominant decision-making species?
1: Unfortunately, due to the atmospheric changes, we have limited ecology left. The spaces that we now occupy are atmospherically controlled because it is not conducive for life-forms outside of our islands. There is no land left to inhabit. The sea levels have risen and there is no land outside of our island creations. An island I have been working on, uh, it's
3: in progress at the moment. We began working on it five years ago, 2045. Uh, We we have responded
1: to people making the choice to become post-human particle fields and we have chosen to create the opportunity for people to become rebirthed into an approximation of once was
3: the human form as you know it now.
0: And um, I've also been collaborating with Beck on this project. And we have been um, working for the last five years on building these infrastructures that can host bodies through a guided meditation that allows them to transform from these particles. Are there any further questions?
4: Do do people work in the future?
0: Did everybody hear the question? I guess I can speak to the specific island that I've been designing. It's somewhat of a... It's a collection of islands that are, uh, we call it an it's incremental a collection sculpture. Of items. It's rubbish. We call it an ecosystem. Um, and it exists on a bladder. So rubbish. So it's dynamic, and it moves it's across the surface, surface of the sludge. Um, it has different capacities in different areas of the island. And one is, we call it luxury communism, because it's somewhat of a, a fantasy funfair island. The possibility for anything uh, of the left as we know it now to triumph over the, the global dominance of the Western influence has long gone. Our islands are corporations, they're not run by governments. And I guess luxury communism is a place where people play. But their play is considered their labor, so... Work, yes, but it's of interest to the customers. And it's a highly secure island. So people and there's lots of incentives for the customers to come and, and occupy this, this that particular island. More
5: questions? Uh, Has has mankind or whoever reached the point of singularity, as in the point where artificial intelligence uh, is at the same level as human intelligence?
1: The islands themselves are sentient. They produce the atmosphere that is required for the inhabitants. They are aware of the needs of beings in the space, for example the walls on the islands that I have helped engineer. The flesh of the walls reoxygenates from the outside atmosphere and breathes into the inner atmosphere at the rate that is necessary to supply those occupying the islands with the adequate oxygenation that they need. And it operates of its own accord in harmony with
0: others. this is an expensive place to live, was the first island that the uh, commodification of oxygen was um, developed through these fleshy walls. And it's, it's a place where, it's an island that moves particularly fast. I mean, the sea levels have risen, so where we are now is submerged under the water, and we, the ocean, has turned to a sludge. It's occupied by a bacteria, which is a, It's quite a simple bacteria. It's not at all sophisticated, but it's incredibly prol- prolific. And the islands move across the surface of the sludge. The island that I initially worked on, on my first project is invisible from above. You cannot see it from the satellites. It's made of glass and it I mean it looks like a, an oil spot on the surface of the sludge. And it's its occupants are actually able to sail through different textures and surfaces and materials. We developed a foam from toads that survived the natural catastrophes that we will have in the next few decades. And these toads secrete this foam, which induces orgasm. And the occupants of this particular island can move through different intensities of that depending on what part of the foam they choose to exist in questions
5: Is luxury communism a place of freedom?
1: activities you are doing, what forms your body is taking. Um, uh,
0: so it is a place of choice you I can choose what the freedom to choose you want to do, what you can choose,
1: choose bodies there, you would like, like to use. And what it is, it is that a you'd place like to you of choice and
0: it's also where you can choose activity activities. Um, activities I think the do.
1: citizens feel free
6: and um, they can choose
1: to feel free. Freedom. I think the citizens to feel free is, free, is a choice. choice. So if you um, don't feel free, perhaps citizens you should choose. choose. You if you don't feel free to feel free, perhaps you should choose. you should choose to leave the island. Perhaps you should
0: Choose to leave the island.
1: There are lots of other islands that you could go to where there are more or less choices and more or less ways to live. Floating between the islands is also a decision you can make. Is there any other you you can make?
0: Rebecca, maybe you can take your microphone.
4: What are you looking for?
3: Are you asking us why we're here? Are you asking us why we, are you asking
0: us why are we looking for...
1: We came only back because we had survived. to come back. They're white. We needed to find out
7: what... Um, it's
0: begun already, the... The planning...
2: is there time where you're from
1: not in the way that digital
0: time exists uh, we break it um, differently not down, uh a linear time or as we know People it are, are, so it's and it are hard to have sequential and events that are flow
1: down again. We've learned, that learned has its to own measure time. the planet for quite some time. And time and and we, and we don't look it at a so clock because so they, to use, use, they have the Earth's very intuitive What, you do, what they want to dream about the Earth's surface? And the choices that it needs to more obtain. So, the capacity for us to be there due to the invention of the moon they can, and they sleep in the water, there isn't
3: a need to measure the time connection to any kind of moon. if there are expensive islands and there are also sort of communist islands, is there still a global uh, like economy or a marketplace?
0: There is only a global economy market. There isn't anything but the capacity to Produce incentives for the customers to occupy your islands. Due to the militarization of the planet, the the islands trade definitely between them, but their relationship is one of deterrence. The only islands that survive are the ones that have the capacity to secure themselves. There's been many experiments and many islands have failed and that's just been the natural ecology of the the business structures and strategic plans that are global, yes. Annabelle, you could give it a little bit more context in relation to what's happened between now and 2050, ecologically.
1: It has already begun... now. There are people that know and anticipate and that have already begun the journey to what will be in our present. The rising temperatures create the rising sea levels and the islands that have been constructed are there to house those that will still be engaged with the economy I suppose that is the future. The Environmental changes mean that there is no choice if you don't have the capacity to be taken the environmental changes forward into the future there
3: is no choice that
1: becomes. You don't have the capacity the, the atmosphere outside comes. of the island is uninhabitable. The atmosphere outside of the island is uninhabitable. The proliferation the water of now the microbacteria that have that is overtaken as the sun, the ocean, that survives by carbon and photosynthesis, In some parts is solidifying, has produced an anoxic ocean. So there are this no oceans, highly toxic marine life. There is no life, nor land to, to house. house the ecology.
0: Oh <laughs> grace Testing. Hello Testing.
4: Testing. One,
2: two, three.
8: Hello? Uh, One, two, one, two.
7: Ready,
2: Grace, you do a little
0: test, of your test.
2: All right, everybody, um, we're all catching our breath after that incredibly uh, beautiful performance. Um, it was just extraordinary, so thank you for staying a little bit longer with us, and welcome to this talk, The Architecture of Display, Sonography as an Agent for Performance and Design. Um, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Fleur Watson. I'm the curator at RMIT Design Hub and along with David Newstein over here and Grace Mortlock, I'm also the co-curator of the recent exhibition at Design Hub, Occupied, which really explored ideas for a more adaptive, responsive and incremental architecture to address the increasing pressures on our cities. And as I said, we've just experienced wetware and um, just so incredibly different and moving and beautiful in, in the M Pavilion today. Wetware was actually a key work as part of Occupied, and it really uh, was developed very closely with Atlanta with the key ideas of the show as we were developing them. So. Um, We're really looking forward to talking about that in more detail today. We have a terrific panel with us today across the creative disciplines of architecture, design, dance, and theatre. And we're really going to tease out the ideas of what we might call sonography. So let me give uh, a brief introduction to all of our guests. And I'm going to start with Atlanta. Atlanta is an Australian dancer and choreographer. As you will have just seen, her work experiments with a variety of performative formats. Recent work includes Miss Universal, presented at Chunky Move, and Gertrude Contemporary, and Body of Work, the recipient of the 2014 Inaugural Kia uh, Choreographic Award, and which has toured extensively. Matthew Bird of Studio Bird has an interdisciplinary spatial practice in the mediums of sculpture, installation, sonography, ...photography, interior design, architecture and site-specific interventions. There's nothing this man can't do. Matt has exhibited commissioned works at the National Gallery of Victoria... ...Melbourne Festival, Mona and most recently at the 15th Venice Architecture Biennale. And we'll be talking about that particular work in more detail. Bruce Gladwin, who we have over here. Bruce is an Australian artist and performance maker. He has been the artistic director of the Geelong-based Back-to-Back Theatre since 1999, a theatre company with a history spanning 28 years. Back-to-Back focuses on experimental works that challenge the possibilities of theatre. And last but definitely not least, we have David and Grace who I mentioned before who pursue their creative practice through the framework of other architects and other others. Other architects operates from within architecture's traditional limits while other others explores the periphery. The tandem practices seek other approaches that challenge conventions, expectations and trends. So, as I said, the theme for today's uh, panel is about sonography as an agent for performance and design. Um, We'll be talking about wetware. We're also going to talk about Lady Eats Apple, the most recent production of Back to Back, which is part of the Melbourne Festival, and Sarcophagus, um, which was done by Studio Bird at the most recent um, Venice Architecture Biennale. So, to begin with, I'd like to start with a bit of an insight into both of these works. And I think, Atlanta, it seems right to start with you. Um, I'd like you to talk a little bit about how you developed wetware from um, the performance that we experienced a few weeks ago, which responded directly not only to the curatorial themes of the show, but the very authored modernist hand of the design hub itself and use those spaces so specifically, how have you developed the work here today for the M Pavilion, which arguably has a very different agenda at its core about the hand and craftsmanship?
0: Well, Wetware came about um, after David and Grace invited me to make a performance for their exhibition, Occupied, as Flora has already told you, and I was really excited about the curatorial vision and theme of the exhibition so I responded to the brief basically rather than coming with something that was pre-existing. So deciding to think about the year 2050 and the capacity for a kind of time travel-esque performance became exciting and um, because the exhibition hang of the design itself was quite full and had a lot of content I was very attracted to, is it PR3? Is that what it's called? Yes. At um the design hub, the ramp, the entrance ramp off Swanson Street um, to the building, which is like a thoroughfare, but it's a it's like a it's too wide for a sort of hallway. So you can sit in the window and watch a performance or you can walk past. And I liked the possibility that either of those things could happen. Um, because presenting a performance in an ex- exhibition space is quite different from the format of a theater. And sort of working in between those two spaces was of interest. And it's a ramp. And um, I liked that. (laughs) So thinking about um, this idea of time travel and um, water, for some reason, became very important. And reading about the image of a river as another sort of spatial conception of time. Um, Kayaks then also became very important. So... um, I guess, yeah, we spent every Friday of the exhibition um, doing what we called exhibited rehearsal, um, which is an interesting kind of format for myself in the sense that it takes quite a long time for a dance work to form and to use the time frame, the many weeks of an exhibition as a resource for the dance um, was very attractive. Um, so, yeah. And so how did you, Atlanta, then... You obviously
2: had this development time through the exhibited rehearsals, uh, the ability to test and tweak and perhaps change the show. How did you then, for today's performance, uh, respond to this site and and this architecture? What were the kind of ideas that uh, evolved the work to what we saw today?
0: It was... A bit scary coming here because we're not so far from a river and a boathouse. Somehow the kayaks in the ramp of this particular building where there's steel and rubber and concrete were so out of context that the image was quite striking. And so coming here I was a bit like, like we look like we've just dragged the boats up from the Yarra. Um, but after spending some time here and thinking about how to... It was rather intuitive rather than uh, at the Occupied exhibition which was very kind of context-specific and spending so much time in that space I could activate the space in a whole bunch of different ways whereas um, I just came here a few days ago and was looking for some sort of symmetry that I couldn't find and thinking that we could have a performance that would bring the audience in and out of the space and think about the landscape and I mean it's a very objectifying ornamental work so thinking about how those relationships exist in this kind of space that it's all um it's it's in process I feel like it's a piece that's that's had the opportunity to be in process over the exhibition and continues to be thought of as such.
2: Bruce, I'd like to draw you in a little bit here, particularly um, in what I've heard you describe as kind of a tri-relationship, this idea of performers, the audience, and then uh, your desire to kind of deal with architectural space, um, particularly almost subvert architectural space. Can you talk a little bit about how you've approached that at Hamer Hall for Lady Eats Apple? Um,
8: Yeah I think it's uh, one of our interests as a company is the relationship between the actor and the architectural structure in which the work is presented and I think uh, well for me as a director I feel very conscious of um, the weight of history. So if you're performing in the state theatre or you know Malt House or Playhouse or any, any venue there's an audience that have been to that venue before and have an expectation of what could be presented there and not only that you've got the kind of western canon of Shakespeare and Chekhov and all of that so there can be an incredible amount of pressure for the actors on stage at that given time and I feel like part of my job in uh, my interest in design is about, in a way, creating a new fra- framework. So we may use the, the physical structure or the architecture of the building and but create some sort of symbiotic um, structure within it that then changes the frame or um, twists it or subverts it in some way. So with uh, the production we've just done at Hamer Hall, um, the audience were seated on the stage and were seated within uh, what was a, a, a large single-cell inflatable structure, uh, which was placed inside a larger single-cell inflatable structure. And uh, as the show and the narrative progressed at given points, the inflatables were released to actually reveal the actual architecture itself of the the internal architecture of the space. Um, I think in a way it's... Uh, function in that work it functioned as a kind of narrative journey and there's a kind of constant expansion out um, I think that for us there's always something about not what we put in but what's already there um, that's of an interest um, and I imagine as Atlanta kind of approached this today about going how do we make this work in here there's something about going what what is intrinsically here in the first place that you can kind of leverage off or work with and Um, even though we often are touring work and we have work in repertoire that has uh, might have a life of 10 or 10 or so years go visiting at different venues there's always an aspect of the work that is site specific like we kind of have to deal with that theater at that time and there's always a kind of sense of rawness of going okay let's It's a part of the show that just shows the theatre for what it is itself. So, that's always our starting point and we kind of leverage from there.
2: Can you expand a little bit about this idea of the frame and how perhaps you use it um, to empower and give a different, I guess, challenge the weight of history in terms of theatre?
8: Yeah, okay. Well, I'm I'm not sure how familiar the, um, the... audience is about back-to-back so it's um quite a unique company it's built around a core ensemble of six actors with intellectual disabilities and uh, when I first worked with the company I I, for me personally as a director I really felt the weight of the history of theatre and and the the venues where the work was being performed um you know for an actor to stand on stage at Hamer Hall and throw their voice to the back of the stalls um, it requires a lot of formal training and so um, our actors don't have that training. Um, often the first work that they might be performing in will be a work with back-to-back and they're on this huge incredible main stage that they haven't studied at the VCA or NIDA for four or five years. So we, I guess we use technology and we use um, this framework, the idea of kind of being able to let's really pull it down so that the audience can really focus on the performer that the, the actor is empowered within the space rather than being kind of disadvantaged by being unfamiliar with it, um, and it's about I guess about shifting the audience's perception of, you know, um, sometimes it's about the audiences come with a perception or, or idea about disability and what it what a disabled actor is, and um, we use the framework to um, twist and subvert that as well. Um, yeah, I think each work is individual, and, it, and there's a different approach to um, the frame each time. Uh, we used inflatables at Hamer Hall. Uh, we've made another work which was made for Flinders Street Station on the concourse called Small Metal Objects, and in a way, there's the frame is no frame. So uh, we use um, radio mics uh, on the actors, and the the frame is a kind of oral architecture. So the the space is defined by the f- strength of the frequency of the radio mics and how far the actors can get away from the, the sound desk, basically. But from the audience's point of view, they're watching um, people commuting in the public's um, space in the train station, and the actors are blending in with um, blending in with the commuters. So it's really for the audience they're trying to question who is a performer and who is just an authentic person in the space. Um, so yeah, for that for that work, there's just no physical design or scenography at all.
2: There's a an interesting parallel, Matt. I think with small metal objects and that kind of um, social intervention, if you like, and and using an unexpected place for. Uh, new happenings. Can you talk a little bit about that um, in terms of your work with uh, Philip Adams and particularly I'm thinking Future Wagon but you might want to expand beyond that.
6: Um, I should acknowledge that Philip is actually here today. Um, uh, Hello, f- Philip. Hey, Philip. <laughs> uh, f- yeah, a few years ago um, um, you kindly commissioned us to do a piece for the NGV um, for Melbourne Now and um, I-, I took the opportunity to invite Philip Along for the ride, so to speak, and um, really keen to sort of examine, um, I guess, this mode of performance and architecture um, in a, I guess, an uncanny location, and something that reflected my childhood memories of the billy cart. Um, so I grew up here in Melbourne, um, in South Caulfield, and you know, as a kid in the 80s, would pull around the billy, the billy cart, homemade billy cart, with my brothers, and I think for me, um, it was that sort of dubious handcrafting quality. Um, and staging something in a suburban location um, without, I guess, any sort of premise of um, what could go wrong. Um, And so working closely with Philip, we devised this wagon um, that was constructed out of um, Bunnings materials, so transforming existing kind of ready-made materials into sort of an inhabitable structure. And um, over the course of a night, um, we pulled the billy cart or Future Wagon, as we called it, around the streets of South Caulfield, which are dotted, I'm not sure if you know, of these really significant um, modernist homes from the 1950s and 60s. Um, And it was about, um, I guess, pushing this sort of modernist spirit of locating uh, a new home um, um, that kind of, you know, I I guess, resonated with um, espionage and um, waiting to get sprung, so to speak, and um, the, the the object was transformed um, into, I guess, photography. Um, so we had an incredible photographer, Ego Sapina, chasing us around, and this photography was, I guess, the the documentation or the the legacy of the project. Um, and the and the audience, I guess, was shifted, um, um, and maybe in a similar way to um, back to back's work. Um, in Flinders Street Station, that suddenly um, the passerby became the audience, the unexpected audience member, and you know, shifting gear of what is stage, what is, um, I guess, the relationship between actor and performer, was like, I guess, for, for Philip and I, um, an unexpected kind of shift as well. I think also just really dumbly, we were kind of aiming to shock, and aiming to um, shock in a way that invited the audience. Um, the unexpected audience to come up to us and ask us what on earth was going on um, and you could not necessarily hear that verbally from them but definitely with their I guess body language around around the project.
2: So I'd like to shift back into the gallery space now. We've been talking about the street as a site for scenography. But, David and Grace, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about uh, Occupied and particularly how you dealt with, in much the way, the same way that Bruce was talking about dealing with Hamer Hall, there's a similar, uh, I guess, scale and uh, hand, authored hand at play with Design Hub. So perhaps, Grace, if you could talk a little bit first about how you approached the design of the exhibition and then David I'd like to draw you out a little bit further about the rooms themselves.
3: I think um, similarly to what Atlanta was saying when we were asked to design the exhibition we knew that we had to respond to Sean Godsell's building and we had to respond to the main space, which is quite a strange dimension of space. So it's eight metres tall and seven metres wide and then about 35 metres long. So it's really large and imposing. And we wanted to do something um, to challenge that and to sort of immediately um, make the viewer aware of that space. Um, So we constructed a wall that ran diagonally through the space And perspectively um, went from about six and a half metres down to 2.4 metres. So, it really shrunk the space and literally occupied the space.
2: David, in terms of... I know we were talking with Bruce about the idea of the frame and this ability to subvert. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of rooms within your work and what the wall obviously contained a number of spaces within the wall, but equally it created spaces outside of the wall... Can you expand on that a little bit further?
4: The wall divided the space into two halves, an exterior zone that was about the kind of larger space of the city and then an interior half that was divided into smaller rooms that dealt with how in the near future spaces might be inhabited much more intensively uh, or in different temporal modes than the ones we expect. And we were interested, I guess, it's interesting when, when Bruce talks about the inversion of Hamer Hall, we were actually, I I think, more interested in subverting our own expectations. So we wanted to set up a series of rooms based on very clear geometries, but we were also interested in how that might fall apart. So we expected there would be some sort of reciprocal relationship between the works that were all very different, and they ranged very much from uh, very pragmatic or very dry or very conventionally architectural, to other work which almost contaminated the space around it or had unexpected openings into other spaces. And we, it was sort of like something that decayed over time. We were interested in how, we were interested in our own failure, I think. And we were just, we're still learning about rooms themselves. So we wanted to explore through that setup what the, how the specific qualities or geometries or dimensions of those spaces could facilitate or could fail in trying to set up or frame the work that was housed within them.
2: I think there's an interesting parallel with how I've heard Bruce talk about uh, developing his work and I'll ask you to expand on that in a little moment, Bruce. Um, but certainly the way that Occupy developed, there was a, a kind of tension, I guess, between... Um, if you like, the the hand of the architecture in play and the fact that many of the works were not yet formed. So, um, can you talk about that relationship and what one gives to the other? What is the kind of opportunities yet challenges within that?
5: Well,
4: part of that came just from the sheer necessity of having to specify what the framework of an exhibition will be. Part of it also comes from our own architectural training, which tells us to make these sorts of structures um, as, a, as, a, um, as the armature that will allow the exhibition to happen. What's been really interesting and rewarding has been to see how, sometimes how that armature doesn't even need to exist. I mean, the moment for me that I can think of is in Atlanta's performance of wet wear that happened in the gallery. There were things that we hadn't seen, even in the rehearsals that we had seen, that that came out in the final performance, like the recording and then um, shifting and framing of the grid structure, of the webforge grid that runs through the building, that became like a city backdrop, and it zoomed in and it zoomed out and it panned, and then suddenly it was like a landscape behind the work. That had nothing to do with the exhibition protocol we'd put in place, um, but it spoke so much about that. And it was a very revealing moment, I think, in terms of what could happen around or beyond the the framework that we'd specified really carefully. But there were all these other moments that could happen around that that might be equally significant. And I think it felt very rewarding to see um, new offshoots from the exhibition that hadn't been um, heavily scripted in that way.
3: I think us sort of losing control a little bit, which was actually quite a good thing, um, Because we did specify very, very specific spaces and then um, other things kept happening and that was actually really great. So there were these lovely moments that kept popping up that we didn't specify and I think that's a good thing.
2: (laughs) And Atlanta, for you, you were very integrally involved. I remember one of the first meetings we had and, and putting down the ideas on the table. Seeing the shape of the space start to formulate and seeing how we were kind of grappling with... Um, many works that uh, we knew were in existence, some works that were performative, which we had no idea what form they might take. How did that inform the way that you approached wetware?
0: I think it was great, like I said before, to use the duration of the exhibition, the time, the many weeks, because then I could... Notice things that I hadn't noticed before, and activate like things like in the um, original iteration. As a part of the exhibition, we had live projection feed and pre-recording from some um, some rehearsals. So I guess, I mean, there was also a space that David and Grace designed and built for myself and the dancers to exhibit costume, and that was a big question like for me because dancers and ephemeral thing perhaps and doesn't leave a trace and all of a sudden there was the possibility to exhibit objects and what does that mean in relation to the um, the performance and and then how does it activate people's imagination of the performance when it's not in process. Um, but for sure, I mean, there was so much content in the exhibition and it was so interesting to work inside of a a brief that was speculative and also some really pragmatic um, visions or suggestions for the potential, like the future of um, architecture or, you know. So yeah, I really enjoyed the, the very, getting to know the content of the exhibition and it's the pragmatic nature. Like, Cause I think mostly everyone was an architect that was exhibited. Maybe I was the only artist, oh, except for the, the live, there was the digital um, video. Filmmakers The filmmakers, yeah.
2: Bruce, I'd like... Could you talk us a little bit through your process... ...when you're working with your ensemble? You have an idea of what the space might be like... ...or how you might treat it. I know you use text and technology in terms of how you work. Can you talk about how those things come together, I guess... ...to almost um, enact the central ideas of the performance?
8: Yeah, well, each, each work's individual, so there's a different process for each work. But fundamentally, um, the work is created in through a process of improvisation between my, uh, with me directing and the actors providing the improvisation and a script is built. But um, at simultaneously, we have like a collective of designers, like there might be um, in this project, someone that specializes in inflatable structure design, um, uh, an AV kind of projection animator Um, a technical director and that design process really starts at the same time as the script development starts and one informs the other Um, and you know for us it's a it's a long journey with the design aspects because we're a touring company um, and we have hopes that the work will tour internationally and where it's kind of like dealing with not only the kind of occupational health and safety issues of putting an inflatable up in Hamer Hall, we're dealing with it in Germany as well. And what materials we're gonna need to get through, um, what materials we're gonna need to, for, you know, fire rating, etc. for Germany and Austria. And it's a whole kind of technical investigation to make sure that the work will have a touring life. And some of that stuff is just incredibly dry, but if we don't nail it at the start, then we might, spend 12 months developing a narrative idea that then can't be realized later on so that, that kind of legwork is really important at, right at right at the outset and so and you know in the end it creates a series of limitations and it's great to work in limitations like that's when i find that for the company we work really work really effectively where we're kind of going all right there's, there's something shaping here and it's actually a smaller space than what we expected. But um, how how can we work really effectively within that space? And um, so uh, you know that di- that constant dialogue. And in a way, it's not two two separate dialogues going on. It's just like one bouncing back from the other in terms of the visual design, the actors developing the script. Um, you know in terms of this show, one of the things that I thought was a really beautiful connection between the two is that within the costume design and the actors, we have one actor, Sarah Manwaring, who has um, difficulty with short term memory. And so we worked with the costume designer for all of Sarah's um, dialogue to be embroidered on the other actors' costumes. So in the, in the, um, of uh, her, well, you know, because we're working in Hamer Hall and there's so much depth of space, you know, and I, it wasn't something where specific we didn't want, we didn't necessarily, um, weren't avoiding the audience seeing the embroidery. It's actually a really beautiful aesthetic built into the costume. But, um, you know, so at the point where Sarah would kind of just go into a kind of blank state and get lost, she would then remember, oh, the, the script is on the jacket the script's on the jacket and just start reading the other um, actor's jacket. So, like, that's just something that's a, you know, it comes from that, I guess, interdisciplinary discussion between the costume designer, the um, set designers and and the actors and just kind of problem solving in a way. Mm.
2: And watching that, do you, the actors, well, of course, when the inflatable goes down, you're revealed and Sarah and her fellow actor are, are way up in in the um, seating for Hammer Hall, but there's this incredible intimacy as she's obviously also taking the cue from the scripts.
8: Yeah, and again, it's, you know, connects back to small metal objects I was talking about at Flinders Street Station and, and is, uh, you know, often what we're trying to do is answer questions that are raised in a previous work and we've had an interest in, you know, working with radio mics and pushing them to the limit in terms of depth of range, but also within this work, we worked with um, a binaural rig. So instead of an actor having a kind of discreetly placed radio mic on the jawline, Sarah uh, wore um, a mic bud in each ear canal. And so with the audience watching the show with headphones on, they had the oral point of view of a specific performer and then there's a kind of, you know, a weird thing as an audience and you kind of go, oh, I'm sitting here, but I'm actually hearing her spatial point of view and her relationship to the actors. And then I'm always fascinated in theatre, you know, as opposed to, say, film, about the the concept of close-up. And, you know, we, we were all familiar with it, c- cutting down to a single close-up shot in film or TV. And it, it really... It's quite an abstract concept, but in theatre, you know, or dance, can you have a close-up? And and there's something with the binaural rigging that actually gave you a sense of close-up. You know, you you really honed in on this one performer, even though you were looking at the vastness of the um, auditorium.
2: Matt, the idea of intimacy and and uh, the close up and kind of brings me to think a little bit about your project, Sarcophagus, at Venice, and particularly that intimacy of sleep. Can you talk us through um, the project, how you approached it as a as a performative space? It's interactive. Uh, it's a work. It's it's in the Venice Architecture Biennale, so it's placed in a um, huge scaled event as well as a scaled building. So can you talk a little bit about how you approach that with the design?
6: Sure, Um, um, I guess I should begin by saying, you know, fortunate me to be invited to present work in such a prestigious um, Biennale in in the sense that um, here's an opportunity to show and tell what I do, you know, all the way from Melbourne. and had been to the Biennale once, like ten years ago, and was in you know complete meltdown when I was invited to do this because it's such a public spectacle for um, the architecture and I guess um, the creative special practice community. Um, and, and so in doing in saying this, I was really keen to present what I do now, um, and so I was really keen to present um, a project that questioned. Um, and ask some what-if questions and it was purely a, a, around sleep space it began and thinking about um, what we do for 10 hours if we're lucky overnight um, and where we where we might go and um, you know it was a, a little bit of a um, ignorant kind of first step into this kind of sleep agenda with my research um, here comes the rain and I um, uh, and so my background, as was mentioned, is in um, performance-based sonography, working closely with Philip Adams um, um, in the dance community. And um, I really, with him um, and the experiences that I've had with him, really, really consider um, body and space and, and the relationship um, both ways. So how space affects body and how um, space can affect, or vice versa, I've confused myself. Um, that um, the, What I wanted to do was create an installation that... It, was interactive, so we invited audiences um, into into a small, intimate space um, that created a sense of um, travel um, and teleportation, and I worked up this um, project, um, working closely with a welder and my local emporium, Bunnings Warehouse, and craft, crafted um, this structure here in Melbourne. Um, And Gainson, maybe lifting off what you were thinking, thinking about how on earth would I get it it to Venice? So, you know, design this thing to be packed up into suitcases, essentially. And having worked with Philip a few times on international projects, you know, really keenly aware of, you know, how much it costs, you know, move stuff around the world. Um, And so these kind of limitations defined this structure in a way um, and created this thing that was filmed here in Melbourne, or in Black Area, actually, and... Um, crafted this sort of of edge-of-the-world kind of context for the sarcophagus, worked closely with a a dancer, Lillian Steiner, and created um, a filmic kind of aspect to the project, which was later transferred into the sarcophagus in Venice through a series of flat-screen TVs. So I'm trying to visualise through through words this project. Um, But in the end, um, in this beautiful palazzo in Venice, um, think, you know, insanely stunning Baroque kind of interior, um, is placed by a sarcophagus and you climb inside, the, the doors are closed. There's four flat screens laying right over the top of you with um, Lillian Steiner moving and operating around the um, sarcophagus here in Blegari. And it was a way of sort of time, time teleportation um, and creating this sort of intimacy of uh, where am I um, moving back and forth between two different landscapes. So there,
2: there's a kind of current well, a a thread that runs through your work, whether it's sarcophagus or whether we're looking at some of the earlier projects about this idea of the transformation, about this idea of using low-value, found DIY aesthetic to create something that uh, completely transcends its origins to create a kind of Baroque-like space, a space for activation. Mm. So it's deeply performative in its in its intent, it seems to me. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you approach that? Is the interior only alive when people come in and activate it or do the materials themselves achieve that?
6: Yeah, I think it's a, a really... Um Great point that I think um, I, I think today I would side, you know, in the sense that the materials, um, the way I sort of operate with these kind of quite prosaic everyday materials are transfigured to, I guess, have a slight resonance to, to the everyday. But, you know, I guess it's that paradoxical shift from, you know, this kind of beer budget to a champagne kind of result. So this kind of lush atmosphere is created. I think um, it's up to everybody how they interpret, t- interpret the work when they're um, um, activated in the space. But I think um, as a deposit, as an object, hopefully no one's getting wet. Um, it, we can jump into the kayaks. Um, the, the the materials, I think, do their own thing. I think they, they start to, um, I guess, shift our mentality of what the value of things are.
2: We are getting a little bit soggy here, but I do want to come back to David and Grace. And I'm particularly interested in... in You talking uh, about this idea of, I know it's something we've talked about in passing, the architecture as background, the architecture as a a space that allows other things to happen, things that you can't quite predict, the idea of the non-fixed, the non-permanent. Can you talk about that in relationship to Occupy, but then also maybe some of the things that you discovered through, through the show?
3: Well, it was funny. We were actually um, in a talk in Sydney a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this very thing and saying that what we try to do with our architecture is to let it fall into the background and make a space for someone's work to be exhibited, specifically for Occupied. And then I went, but it's super ironic because we just built a ginormous wall in the middle of the gallery. So at the same time, the architecture is very, very present. Um, So it's kind of playing with those two things, I think
4: funny because I think that Bruce's you know, small metal objects is probably as close to that ideal of architecture as background as I've ever seen because the, the space that you sit in disappears and you become almost like a camera it's interesting that you talked about the close up because I found the experience of seeing that work at Circular Key in Sydney that anything that happened in that space any bit of rubbish that blew across it or the movement of people suddenly became cinematic and I was wondering how whether, how the director had managed to make the rubbish move across the space <laughs> or had managed to make people move in such a um, beautiful sort of slow way or something, and of course that was just the heightened perception um, I think that it's an almost an impossible aim because of course we were not in, we were not a background to everybody else who walked past the stage and looked at us wearing headsets. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about intimacy and and um, awareness of surroundings. I didn't realise that this pavilion had a polycarbonate roof until it started raining, and there was suddenly a, a difference. And of course, the, it's created the rain has, obvi- has also changed the intimacy of the setting that we're in. Um, uh, I think that the aspiration, ideally, is to have architecture that can sort of disappear, so that into the, the so the experience takes over, and the awareness of the sort of vehicle that you're within. Um, fates, but it's always every every specific situation you find yourself in demands a different approach and that approach can sometimes through its complexity take over or become very visible or very present. So I think at the moment, and maybe we'll learn more about it as we go on, but at the moment we find ourselves kind of in between these two opposing poles, the one that wants to disappear and the one that sort of ends up becoming the foreground through that effort.
2: I think it would be really interesting to try and reflect... I mean, it, within occupied, there were certain ideas that we were trying to grapple with. Some of them were quite difficult. And there was a, a political, a kind of socio-political agenda within the show. So I'm interested in this idea of how sonography can be an agent for that. And there is a tension, as you describe it, between it kind of sliding into the background to allow the performance to happen, but also setting up enough of a structure for that to work. Um, we've got the mozzies now as well, have we? Um, so, <laughs> just swap them away up here. So, I guess how... I, I think we're all getting a bit soggy. So, I think to end, what I'd like to do is, is to get everyone to reflect on a situation where they feel that that has worked or perhaps been incredibly challenging. So, for example, if we start with Occupied, there were certain things that we were interested in discovering around the show. The show was not in intentionally didactic. It was trying to open up questions. Some of those were very difficult questions such as neoliberalism in housing or what is the impact of the share economy, when we have so many empty apartments, um, for example, and so many people who don't have access to housing. So, what, what do you think you learnt from that in terms of architecture and an architecture exhibition in this case, through sonography, acting as a kind of agent, an agitator for sometimes quite challenging and difficult ideas?
4: Oh, I think, in the sense, in the sense of that exhibition in particular, I think that we worked with you on a diversity of different contributors. You know, that was something that we we never we always agreed upon. There was there'd be this great, there'd be a really wide bandwidth. We'd have a whole range of approaches. Uh, the architecture, in a way, then is a little bit like the relationship of a book to content. Um, it's a format. I think the architecture of that exhibition was a format for placing and exhibiting and drawing attention to the content and some moments the architecture itself kind of took over. Um, Sometimes in a sort of spectacular way uh, like the loft that Jackie Alexander and Sibling created um, being a sort of mirador that gave you an overview of the exhibition Um, but often I think it was the architecture is most important in the planning phase and then hopefully the content comes to the fore and the content is what stays with people.
2: Atlanta, it, with with yourself, I noticed how the work shifted and changed a little bit today according to the questions that opened up around the work. Even though perhaps at Design Hub those questions were more um, explicit or, or being teased out through the works around them, is that something that uh, you build into the way that you respond with a show? Is it is it that kind of interaction that allows you to develop it?
0: Yeah, I think similar to Bruce, I find that my work is site-specific, even if it, it is in a black box. Every black box is different. And so there's a lot of negotiating. Um, from the very minute you begin a conversation with the curators or your collaborators, that for me is the work, the, um, talking about the economy, talking about the different kind of formats, whether it's in a theatre, whether it's in an exhibition so it's sort of interwoven into this idea of how a choreographer and a dancer exists and works in the world and how that is valued inside of different um, institutions. Um, but I guess thematically in the work, this piece, it still feels very much in process. So I guess talking specifically to the scenography, yeah, it's, it's at the moment here been quite intuitive and thinking about, um, yeah, how it's, how it's going to work Aesthetically, there—I mean—there really is a disconnect between the discourse that's informing these future architects and these principles that we're working on, which is a is an observational ballet practice. It's getting kind of microbiotic feedback from the early forms of oce- earliest forms of oceanic life. Um, the water in our bodies is really informing the ballet that we do. Uh, that's obvious, not maybe not completely obvious to the um, audience, but for some reason, that's working on those production of the, um, the aesthetics of that or the, the sensibility that the dancers produce through that um, process is somehow working on an experience of the unknown for us. So maybe ideologically that's an interest. But I guess other work that I've made is really working on how to not commodify my work. Like how can I make a performance that ages through the duration of its life? So how can it not be an object that is repeatable? How can we see it as an accumulation of changes and expanding over, over its means of presentation. So generally speaking, I think inside of each work and its context and its interest or concept, how do we think about the social and political conditions that actually form the work um, instead of making them a, like a topic inside of the work, if that makes sense.
2: And Matt, you talked a little bit earlier about Future Wagon. But also what comes to mind is, is the project you did at the Hilton Hotel and this kind of um, subversion, uh, intervention into the global brand, the idea that there is a one-size-fits-all aesthetic. It seems to me that does have a, a political agenda at its heart. Can you talk a little bit about that project?
6: Yeah, sure. Um, a few years back, I took it um, upon myself to transform um, one of the hotel suites in the Hilton-on-the-Park, um, which I think is rebranded to another hotel now, um, and secretly, without actually asking permission. Um, and was keen, I think, to do this. Um, there's a few kind of silly reasons, of course, um, um, but it was primarily to sort of really understand the hotel market in interior design. As naive as that sounds, I kind of thought, well, how am I going to crack into this industry? Why don't I just going to do something? Um, and it was, I think, you know, that was the initial point. And I think as I researched Conrad Hilton and looked at the Hilton Hotel um, legacy and this incredible sort of modernist spirit of literally dropping these multi-rise um, modernist buildings into far-flung or then far-flung kind of locations like Cairo and Istanbul, Um I kind of looked into them and realised, hang on, we kind of like got screwed over with our version. This big brown brick nasty thing um, mm-hmm. dropped into East Melbourne and um, and then the interiors get even worse. So they sort of slip into the 1990s, anywhere in the world, corporate kind of hotel lifestyle. So I was having a good sort of like critique at, at, at I guess the value of, and the aesthetic of um, our hotel experiences here in Mel- Melbourne and of course sort of art hotels um, incredible sort of experiences that I've had overseas and um, realised that they work, the original Hilton Hotels work, because there's this incredible aesthetic back to the context, to the sort of local local region. So the ho- hotel in Cairo has these incredible sort of Egyptian references, um, you know, throughout the entire complex. So anyway, short story is um, I checked myself into the hotel with a whole bunch of pre- prefabricated materials um, that I had bought from Bunnings um, and sourced, scavenged elsewhere. And put a do not disturb sign on the on the door and um, over the course of five days, um, with a couple of mates, transformed the interior with lightweight materials. And I think definitely with a sonographer's set design kind of principle of creating an illusion, so creating this kind of thin sort of facade that sort of s- softly um, didn't destroy the existing room, that, um, you know, presented, I guess, this transformation, so um, I worked with... I guess, Aussie kind of colours, green and gold. And, you know, found other references back to colonial kind of um, colours and materials and let Bunnings kind of do its wonder as well. Um, Yeah, got busted nearly a couple of times by accidentally locking myself out of the room, having to get the manager to let me in and creating false stories how there's people in the room you can't come in to let me in. Um, uh, That probably doesn't make sense. And... Um, had Peter Bennett's photog- photograph, the actual interiors, so he was kind enough to secretly come into the space. And the photographs were used, I guess, to present to the hotel management later on what you could do. And, um, and I what think... was the response? Uh, the response was, is it still there? <laughs> and it wasn't. Um, I kind of thought, I don't really want to end up in... What if, I don't know what the worst thing could have happened to me, but I didn't really want to, I guess... End up on today tonight or some kind of terrible 6 p.m. newsfeed, um, and um, the response was really quite positive. Um, so I think I lucked out with the right people that I was talking with, um, and they, um, you know, so a few other projects have since come on, um, you know, post that experience. But I think really the positive thing was, um, you know, presenting this kind of installation methodology. Um, presenting, um, I guess, an architect or a special practitioner um, and the role that we can offer as well and that, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit kind of, um, I think, lifted their spirits, you and know. And that
2: early test now, a recurring theme in your work.
6: Indeed, yeah. yeah.
2: Bruce, you said before that each work is, is different and obviously the process is very different. Um, but Back to Back has been going for 28 years and acclaimed and tours all over the world. Is there a kind of accumulated knowledge that you found uh, you can exchange and share with other um, groups around the world or performers who are looking to establish um, ways of experimenting with space for actors of differing ability?
8: Um. I, I guess so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um. I don't know if it's, I, you know, like just coming in, having a discussion with people from different disciplines and seeing the work today, I find totally inspiring. Like, and um, finding common threads, finding things that you would think were un, unlike but finding um, a, a narrative journey between them. Or, you know, I, what I loved about the performance today is just um, a, it's a real lesson to me about... Uh, I just love how uh, the initial statement just set up a whole structure <laughs> that we all ran with. You know, we all ran with it, and and I'm just going, that's really powerful. Like you can just you can just name it, and then you are in it, <laughs> and I, I love that. I love I love the simplicity of that, and I love it how it came up front, and I love it how it also the the questions from the audience came first. Like it was like a kind of reversal like often in theatre or dance or something, there might be a discussion post-show, but it just came, here's the statement and here's, you can respond to it straight away. So, um, I don't know, like I think for the company, we're constantly um, open to um, trying to feed the company, you know, working with actors with disabilities um, at a point, it started at a point in uh, just post-deinstitutionalisation. It's really important. That we as a organisation don't become an institution in their own right, and like the one way of doing that is by engaging with other forms and other artists and um, other discourse, and you know feeding that back into the company. And you know as we kind of tour, we try and engage, running community workshops and uh, you know other explorations with other artists and other communities, and as well, yeah.
2: Well. I think we're almost out of time, and it's getting very cold up here. Um, Does anyone have a question that they'd like to ask the panel? Is there a question anywhere? I don't know if we've got a mic. You might have to shout if there is. No? All right. Well, um, thank you so much. It's been an incredible afternoon to experience wet wear here at M Pavilion, and then to really have the pleasure of talking to you all. Thank you for your generosity. Um, So if you can put together your hands very quickly for Bruce, Matt, Atlanta, David and Grace. And thank you to M Pavilion, Robert Buckingham and Naomi Milgram Foundation for having us here today. Thank
7: you. Thank you, Flora. Massive thanks, Flora.